0: Obviously, in 45 minutes, I'm just going to skim the surface, but I'll try to give a little bit of background about what's happening and, and the concept of death over time. Um, my disclosures are the Ethics Committee of the Child Neurology Society, the Ethics, Law, and Humanities Committee, which is from the American Academy of Neurology and the Brain Death Working Group. But I have no external interest, the new term for conflicts of interest. Um, I'll be dividing this talk into about eight different topics. Uh, First of all, the terms and definitions of death, a brief history of death and brain death, which is more appropriately called determination of death by neurological criteria. Some aspects of the medical side on this, neurophysiological sides of death, and then the overriding cultural, social, religious, and philosophical sides of death, as well as many of the ethical issues. And some of the recent challenges, as were just discussed. Along the way, I'm going to talk about a couple myths about death um, that I hope, hopefully you'll be able to understand at the end of the talk. Uh, there are not two forms of death. There are two ways of determining death. Uh, brain death is legal and widely accepted in all 50 states, although the, the wording of the, uh, the laws is slightly different between states. And about 70% of industrialized nations recognize death, but not all uh, brain death. The concept of brain death uh, evolved in parallel to organ transplantation, but it was not the reason for brain death determination. Most major religions are not opposed to the concept of brain death, with some exceptions that I'll touch upon. And the whole concept of Jahai McMath and this accommodation Uh, for those people who have religious beliefs or conscientious opposition to the concept of brain death, and the state of New Jersey, which is the only state which really allows that opposition. We can talk about death. We need to talk about the biological side of death, and the opposite of that is obviously life. And in the last century, life expectancies have increased. Uh, In some countries they're starting to plateau a bit, but with new technological advances we expect some extension of life uh, in some persons. If you believe in Genesis and the Methuselah who lived supposedly 969 years before he died which set off Noah's Ark and the Great Flood, Uh, obviously this is mythical But that's the longest living supposed human being in fiction. Um, And the longest living human being is Jean uh, Calment from southern Southern France, who lived to be 122 and a half years. Um, But I think that the meaning of life, which we probably won't have enough time to talk about here, is not really defined on the duration of life or life expectancy, necessarily. So in death you can see across the lifespan what's likely to kill you. And this is data from the CDC looking at death certificates across the the lifespan. And it's clear that in the pediatric age groups, unintentional accidental death is number one on the list, followed by closely from other types of uh, death, which is called suicide and homicide, which are top on the list. And cancer across the way, um, there are two bimodal peaks in childhood and then in midlife, less so in later life. And if you beat the odds, you're going to be dying probably in your 90s from respiratory and circulatory causes, not from cancer. This this data is also from the CDC looking at uh, unintentional death, which is really accidents and injury as being the number one cause of death in childhood and young adults, followed closely by suicide number two. Homicide is also uh, highly represented in pediatric death. But the purpose of this talk is not to talk about all of the different ways in which one can die, but really just talk about death in general, in terms of from the macroscopic view, how how and when people die and from what. But There are different processes in death and different forms of death ranging from sudden death, which I call the three I's, injury, infection, and ischemia. And if again you beat the odds and you are an old person, you have this phenomena of of gradual decline, which I call the three A's, aging, atrophy, and Alzheimer. But most of death is occurring in later life, and then there's this cancer trajectory and these other types of critical illness which will take a life fairly quickly. This talk is not about physician assisted dying or what we now call lawful hastened physician dying. Meaning there are six states in the United States which allow physician assisted or hastened dying. Nor is this a talk about euthanasia which is a word that means from the Greek good death from phalanthos, you, good. And whether or not there is a good death or not is debatable. And it also doesn't get into the point of voluntary euthanasia, involuntary euthanasia, and involuntary euthanasia. So there's various forms of that as well, but I'm not going to touch upon that type of issue. A little bit about the prevalence of death. There's about 2.7 million people in the United States per year who die. You read obituaries of people every day in the newspaper, but it's only about 50,000 pediatric deaths in the United States per year. And if you look at all death under the age of 50, it's about 12% of all death. And as a matter of fact, if you were to eliminate all death under the age of 50, it would only raise the life expectancy in the United States by about 3.5 years. Of this entire group, about 1 to 2% of these deaths are brain deaths which would be about 50,000 50, per year. But all of these brain deaths occur in ICUs by definition because these people are on respirators. Matt, Matt Kirschen from CHOP published an article last month in JAMA Pediatrics, which looked at if you make it to the pediatric ICU, these are pediatric numbers, it's about one in five people that will die from brain death. So again, not, not all death that doesn't make it to the hospital, but those who do, who end up in the ICU, And of those, over half are from cardiac arrest and epoxic ischemic encephalopathy. Traumatic brain injury is second, about one in five. And shock, respiratory failure, and other causes account for another 30% or so. So getting on to the main first topic, defining and determining death. The first question is, what is human death? And that's a conceptual issue. So I think we need to see that death, just like life, is a biological phenomenon. One of the reasons it becomes confusing is because we have an emotional relationship with death. Like we were saying, this is a taboo topic for the most part. People don't want to talk about death because we have religious perspectives, cultural, philosophical perspectives on what death is, what the meaning of life is. And these are, for the most part, debated topics throughout our existence and no clear answer. And then there's the concept of modern death, compared to with modern technology and how things have changed over time compared to ancient death where it was when the heart stopped beating and was irreversible and people died outside of ICUs. Then there's the technical side of death, which I'll talk about the criteria to which death needs to be determined and what tests are needed on the medical side. So according to the Uniform Determination Determination of Death Act, which is uh, an offshoot of the President's Commission on the Study of Ethical Problems in Medicine, Biomet- Biomedical and Behavioral Research. An individual who has sustained irreversible, and this is the key word permanent and irreversible cessation of either circulatory and respiratory functions, cardiovascular, cardiopulmonary death, or, by definition, all functions of the entire brain, including the brain stem, i.e. death by neurological criteria, DDNC, or so-called brain death, is dead. And right below that, there's an important caveat, which is that the determination of death must be made in accordance with accepted medical standards, which I'll get back to later in this topic. So there's a movement away from the anatomical based terms such as cardiac death and brain death, because we're looking at the organism as a whole, the entire organism, the entire function of the body, rather than the components within the body, the functional components of various organs. An emphasis is being placed on the neurological function as being a critical component. By definition, people who are brain dead are living on a respirator. And without that respirator, they would quickly die. The medullary function which drives cardiac function is, by definition, in someone who is brain dead, uh, already not, no longer functioning. So determination of death by neurological criteria is legal death throughout the United States. It relies on the medical community to provide medical standards by which determination of neurological death can be, uh, death by neurological criteria can be determined. And it's the responsibility of the medical community to ensure that this is made in a consistent manner to avoid false positives and false negatives, which is part of the reason there's this public skepticism, because of this inaccuracy, which is paramount to the determination of death. I think this needs to have a historical perspective. How did we get to 2019 and some of the controversies in death? So I'll just briefly go over some of the major points uh, from historical perspectives. Clearly traditional death before we had hospitals, before we had 911, before we had CPR, before we had respirators, was just that the heart stopped beating and circulation ceased and there was no effort to get this going again and that's how uh, death was defined for the millennia. EEG is a technology that was developed in the 1920s and 1930s, and and there was a report in 1938 about isoelectric (coughs) EEG as being a measure, an objective measure by the medical community to sort of look at brain as as an organ in determining death. But modern medicine really began after the Second World War and the atrocities of the Second World War and the 80 million deaths of the Second World War. While the world was at war, there was very little advancement in in medical science. But after the war, the first cardiac defibrillator was invented in about 1947, and the first respirator was a positive pressure ventilator in 1949. The first ICU was established in 1952, followed by two different types of ventilators, a volume-cycled ventilator followed by a pressure-cycled ventilator in the mid-'50s, and the first kidney transplant was in 1954 from a live donor. The Vatican convened on this topic in the mid-50s and Pope Pius XII, in a very important address to anesthesiologists, talked about the prolongation of life from the Christian perspective, uh, in in this case the Roman Catholic perspective, uh, about a word he used, extraordinary measures that were not obligatory, the ordinary and, dis- and extraordinary measures that were previously used as words are now proportionate and disproportionate care in our vocabulary, but it's the same concept. The first description of what we think now is brain death was in 1958, uh, le coma de passé, uh, state beyond coma, and that was the first paper that really described the concepts of brain death. Uh, immunosuppressive therapy was developed in the late 1950s, which allowed organ transplantation to be more successful. The first lung transplant was in 1963. CPR guidelines were in the mid-1960s. The first heart transplant was in 1967. And I think what is just a fact that's very, very important is that the the concept of 911, which came out in 1968, was part of the reason we're dealing with hospital-based death and brain death now, because previously people never made it to the hospital. The first advanced directives were in 1968, and then that same year, in part because there were by this time 107 heart transplants performed in 24 different countries without any guidelines to confirm death prior to dead donor donation. And this ad hoc committee from the from Harvard was the first to define death. And this is a, a critical uh, document. And unfortunately in the, in the title they use the term irreversible coma. But There was a debate among the 13-member <coughs> ad hoc committee chaired by Henry Beecher and in their discussions they talked about the primary purpose has been and is to define irreversible coma. Uh, we'll change that to death. Number in, a, a number of secondary issues flow from this they will be discussed, irreversible coma poses a serious problem for hospitals. Under what circumstances, if if ever, shall extraordinary means of support be terminated with death to follow, which is where this term, withdraw of care, pull the plug, comes from. Uh, That that was initiated also with this article. Uh, The article actually writes about unreceptivity and unresponsivity. Uh, which I think is unresponsiveness, but that's the word they used. Uh, no movements or breathing, no reflexes, but they used EG as one of the criteria for brain death, which is no longer used. And all of these tests had to be repeated at least 24 hours later, and they talked about the importance of excluding hypothermia and CNS depressants, and I'll get back to that shortly. But the committee focused on the whole brain con- concept which overlaps with integrity of the whole organism and the philosophical uh, discussions. The 1970s were a very interesting time because there was a shift from dying at home, where two-thirds of people died at home in the early part of the century, to about two-thirds of people dying in the hospital by the mid-70s, in part because of 911. There were also post-Vietnam, there were legal and cultural shifts. And a major shift illustrated mostly by Karen Ann Quinlan in her case in 1975, a shift from paternalism of doctors when what doctors say to patient autonomy. And the Karen Ann Quinlan case was probably the, the most important in this, re, in this regard. The first American hospice was in 1974, and then the Carter administration set up a bioethics committee. Uh, presidential committee, which addressed brain death. And that was resulting in the publication in 1981 of the Guidelines for Determination of Death, called the UDDA. Wasn't until 1982 that the first pediatric hospice was established. So by the 80s, we had four criteria. The Harvard criteria, which was seminal work, but overruled at some point. Uh, The 1981 UDDA, President's Commission, and then in 1987, the American Academy of Pediatrics Special Task Force published its guidelines on the determination of death in children, and then seven years later, the American Academy of Neurology published practice parameters determining brain death in adults. And these, these are now the standards beyond the ADD-A. And, and both of these documents have been uh, renewed. Uh, pediatrics in 2011, and neurology in 2010 and this document from pediatrics is up for review now i just recently reviewed it and it's been approved at least by the child neurology society so it will probably be published in its original in its current form again without much change but there's been a lot of controversy because not everybody is in agreement with the concept of brain death and there's been a lot of discussion pushback in the community which i'll get to shortly and this article was published last year uh, by the um, Ethics, Law, and Humanities Committee of the, Child Neurolo- of the uh, American Academy of Neurology in neurology, an interdisciplinary response to contemporary concerns about brain death determination. And all of these major organizations, including Child Neurology, Society for Critical Care, American Academy of Neurology, American Academy of Pediatrics, have all endorsed these documents again. So then there's the technical side, the medical, neurophysiological issues. I just want to cover these briefly, and I was not going to talk about cellular death. But clearly, biological death involves different levels, and that includes tissues and cells. And this is a science, basic science in itself. Wasn't going to mention it, but it was recently in the news because of um, a paper published in Nature, performed at Yale, actually, where they took decapitated pig heads on ice and, and hours later we are able to culture living neurons from decapitated brains. But this is no surprise because we've, we've talked about this forever. The death of the entire organ and the function of the organ is not to say that individual cells couldn't be surviving after legal death. And these terms involve necrosis, apoptosis, autophagy, uh, tumor suppression, suppressing genes, telemerases, shortened telomeres, the processes of aging that we're all aware of, but that's beyond the topic here today. For practical terms, uh, whenever I've been involved from my side in the brain death determination, I've always used checklists, and this is obviously a slide nobody can read, but this is, this is a list where you go through in detail. I'm going to cover the main points here, but not the details. But it would be extraordinarily important in performing a brain death exam that you follow every rule. The first rule are the prerequisites. If somebody doesn't look like they're probably dead, you're not going to start doing that. But it has to be in context to a major brain injury. Um, You have to document that major injury, and today we do that with neuroimaging, so you have to see this injury. And then there are a number of reversible conditions that need to be excluded, like drugs toxication, muscle relaxants, hypothermia, and especially in the era with therapeutic hypothermia, we have to make sure that the body is cooled to a certain degree, um, is warm to a certain degree after cooling, before brain death determination can take place. And then obviously shock and metabolic and endocrine causes play a major role. So we use these words irreversible and permanent, and then the loss of these functions, what cannot be restored, and that that needs to be documented in great detail. And then the next three major steps, which the patient is in coma and there's nothing you can do to get them to respond, there's a known cause, it's irreversible, and, and the patient's not reacting to anything we do, followed by a series of brain stem checks, uh, which involved the pupils, oculocephalic reflexes, putting ice water into the ear canal, corneal responses, gag responses, and motor. And the apnea testing is essential in brain death determination because of the loss of lower medullary chemoreceptors. And we measure this with PPCO2, partial pressure CO2, levels rising, which we normally keep fairly low, but we let those rise to the point that the brainstem clearly is not reacting to hypercapnia. One of the issues that's under discussion for us as a brain-death working group is can we harmonize the differences between the pediatric and the adult death guidelines? Uh, even the so the American Academy of Neurology's document has gone from two exams to one, but in studies, most hospitals are still using two. And in pediatrics, we still use two, separated by a certain amount of time, with optional ancillary testing depending on the, sur- on the situation. But these different protocols have slight differences in neurological testing and observation periods and even within the pediatric guidelines there are slight differences for neonates compared to older children. And just a comment about neonates, uh, brain death in neonates is extraordinarily rare. Uh, personally I've never seen it before. These are very stringent guidelines. Uh, the fontanelle is open. Uh, the brainstem is relatively hyperemic. Uh, the rule book says two exams separated by 48 hours with two isoelectric EEGs, but this is rarely performed. We have to know that in very premature babies, the, the gag reflex and the pupillary reflexes are not even developed, so they're not reliable. These injuries to babies are usually devastating, but not brain death. And we usually transfer the burden to the parents, and the decision is made based on bad prognosis rather than the technicalities of brain death. There are inter-institutional variations in determining brain death in the United States, not only in adults, but also in children. And I noticed this myself having come from Yale in 2016 to Connecticut Children's. The two institutions for children in this state have different protocols. And I don't know if anybody else has noticed this, but you could be brain dead in Connecticut Children's differently than you would be at Yale. And this, unfortunately, has led to part of the um, confusion by the public about the meaning of of brain death. And this obviously is, is a very important topic here, because the fifth pillar of ethics beyond autonomy, non-maleficence, beneficence, and justice is the fifth pillar is fidelity, trust. And especially in an era where physicians are becoming providers and the ethics are going from professional ethics to business ethics, this is, this is a major threat, I think, to public understanding and the importance of the profession. Um, And this may affect organ donation, although that's probably less of a a major issue. Um, A lot of legal and hospital conflicts leading to legal cases that I'll talk about in a second. And a number of advocacy organizations, somewhat in parallel to the immunization crisis, there's a small percentage of people who are disbelievers and are pushing back against major medical concepts, biological concepts. So just like the number of parents who won't immunize their children, you'll see some families who don't want to believe in the concept of brain death. And that leads to these cultural and social issues, which are very, very complicated, and I don't really have much time to talk about these. But even among physicians, according to three surveys, uh, only 91% of surveyed pediatric neurologists and intensivists believe brain death is legal death, and only 93% of surveyed adult neurologists believe that brain death is legal death. So even among physicians, there's disagreement about the validity of the concept of brain death. And again, in 70% of countries, it's legal. Uh, It's not practiced in Japan and China, among other countries, which is a, a very interesting topic to see how they deal with death without having the concept of brain death. This overlaps with organ donation and the percentage of people who believe in organ donation. Obviously, I think that people that believe in organ donation probably have a higher probability of believing in brain death. 95% of adults agree, but only half of people register. And it varies from state to state. About 80% of people in Alaska are registered as organ donors, but only 13% of people in New York. Of the European countries, the, the country which has the highest level of organ donation and organ transplant is Spain. So there's two types of organ donation, one coming from brain death, where the patient's been declared death, and the the nurses from the the transplant group come in after death has been pronounced. The patient's maintained in the ICU while while the evaluation is complete, and the patient goes to the operating room. Donation after circulatory death is a little bit more difficult. You have an irreversibly injured brain. Uh, Patients on a ventilator is not quite brain death, brain dead. The family decides to take the patient off the ventilator and wants organ donation. Patient is extubated, the heart has to stop, and then the organs are recovered within 60 minutes. So very briefly, this is a a big topic uh, in terms of, again, the cultural, emotional, religious, and spiritual relationships that we have to the concept of death. Um, This is very, very important and and most of the time physicians are too busy or they're too technical and not adequately trained in understanding the importance of talking to patients who have very clear religious beliefs around the time of death. And this is where the hospital uh, chaplains and priests and imams come in. Uh, In Catholicism, uh, organ donation is an act of charity. It's morally acceptable and has been since the 1950s as mentioned. In Islam, it wasn't until the mid-1990s in Mecca where the, the uh, leaders of the faith uh, agreed that organ donation was, after brain death, was permissible under Islamic law. And for the most part in Judaism, the other major monothe- monotheistic religion, it's generally accepted for all forms of Judaism except for one a very conservative part of orthodox Judaism, which contends that brain death is not a legal concept of death. So there's differences even within major religions. These are the countries that are mostly doing organ transplant, and as you can see, Spain is leading Europe, and the US is uh, close behind. So, again, some of the ethical issues, moral obligations. This gets into the definition of death who's living, who's dead. Uh, That's uh, a legal definition, clearly, as well. But then the concept of personhood who's actually, who has identity, who's living, who's protected by citizenship, who has an address, who can receive social security. If you're dead, can you receive uh, health insurance? If you're dead, can you have liberties and rights? And these are are very important. And getting back to the Jahai McMath case, this was a good example. How can you pay for all of this health care if a person's no longer living? And then autonomy. Who decides on these issues? Who are guardians? That was the Karen Ann Quinlan case, where the parents were not allowed to be the guardians of their daughter after she died. 21-year-old woman who... (coughs) was dieting, took drugs and alcohol, had two 15-minute cardiac arrests, and was intubated. And this was the first time in the mid-'70s that this country as a whole, and it was in the newspapers every day, what about Karen Ann Quinlan? What are her rights? Obviously, her parents wanted to disconnect her from the ventilator. The courts, the, the Superior Court of New Jersey said, no, it's up to the doctors. The doctors were under pressure because they thought if they extubated Karen Ann Quinlan, they would be uh, accused of murder. It was appealed to the New Jersey Supreme Court, and the condition, uh, the, the decision was completely overruled. The parents were given guardianship of their daughter. They elected to extubate her. And unfortunately, she was not brain dead. So she lived on in vegetative state for another 10 years. But this was a, a seminal decision legally about who who can decide. And then obviously, the distributive justice ethical principles of how much How much scarce resources are we willing to allocate for brain dead persons? Other ethical issues about the the meaning, the philosophical meaning of life, the value of brain death as as a real physiological state as opposed to the organism as a whole. People question whether brain death equals the end of life, the justice of minimizing futile medical care and the social utility of providing organs for transplant. Which gets back to the word futility, which is close to the, u- the word utility. And there's a fine line between these things. And people can be criticized on either end about things that we do that are actually helpful versus things that we do that cannot be helpful. And people have argued this, this article by Cranford et al., Medical Futility, uh, that The application of the word fertility is itself futile. And again, the proportionate versus disproportionate care debate. We have these families' pursuits. And this is more of a tax. This is the art of medicine. Oftentimes, engagement, having a dialogue with families, it's a process. It's not just one decision. Death isn't a, a single event. Hope and bargaining, mediation, wrongful life claims. In today's environment, it's not about making a mistake with where a patient would die, but making a mistake where a patient would actually live, and you would get into the situation of wrongful life, lawsuits, nobody ever told me. And now I have all of these burdens and costs of caring for a person in a vegetative state. So some legal and policy considerations. Um, Brain death is considered to be legal in all 50 states, but the statute language varies from state to state, and at least in six states in their in their laws, uh, irreversible sensation of functions of the entire brain, including the brainstem, is not even noted. So very briefly, these high-profile cases, high-profile meaning they've been in the press, everybody's been talking about them, but there's quite a few. Most of these are children. And this is the idea that this could happen here, too, that we have that we have a, a family that is pushing back after a child's been declared dead. And this raises a lot of controversies about brain brain based death? Uh, can families resist? Is this a libertarian phenomenon in the United States, where everybody gets to do whatever they want to do? Or do we have laws people have to abide, abide by? The major cases that you need to know about is Aidan Hailu a 20-year-old, 20-year-old woman who had uh, an appendectomy, an intraoperative anoxic event in April 2015. Her father objected to the determination of death. The Nevada Supreme Court ruled that it was not clear that Aiden was legally dead because the state statute on determination of death was created before the 1995 AN criteria. She died, but after her death, the Nevada Supreme Court made a very important ruling that Determination of death by neurological criteria must be made in accordance with brain death determination guidelines published by the AAN in 2010 or the Society for Critical Care Medicine in 2012 or any subsequent change in either document by these societies or their successor organizations. In other words, they put it back into the medical <coughs> uh, realm to make decisions about this rather than legal. So well, over the years, we've had these high profile cases again. Uh, Karen Ann Quinlan, the most important of all, mid-70s, followed by Nancy Cruzon, similar case, mid-80s, Terry Schiavo in 2005, and then a different type of legal aspect, uh, for example, baby K, uh, which is the right to demand treatment, and then another category which is evolving, which is this right to death support, so right to get a ventilator after you've been declared dead. What are the motivators to demand care? False hopes, unrealistic expectations, confusion. A lot of mixed messages. There's a lot of lack of education about what brain death is. People don't understand it. Illusion of control, failure to set goals and understand values. And again, poor communication, which gets back to the art of medicine. There are valid uh, naysayers, outliers, people that believe this is a legal fiction. A legal fiction is sort of, we know this is not true, but we'll go along anyway because of organ donation. So this is, this is actually not a very logical argument, in my opinion. Um, but it gets back to this philosophical concept of death as a biological entity, integrative function. Why is it that a brain-dead pregnant mother can gestate a fetus to term? Why is it that Jahai McMath, whose cardiac arrest occurred at 13 years of age, could have gone through puberty while she was dead, hooked up to a respirator? Wounds can heal. So there are these other bodily integrative functions which are still functioning after the organ as a whole has ceased to function. A couple of brief words on personhood, um, and because of short time, I actually won't go through the philosophy of this, Um, But it comes down to this. The red line is what we call legal death. This is like blindness, 20 over 200. It's like being an adult at age 18. You have this legal cutoff. Above that, you're dead. Below that, you're not dead. Below it would be uh, liquefaction of the brain tissue, disintegration of the tissue. Above that, and philosophical arguments have argued that when you have loss of consciousness, permanent, irreversible, cortical loss, higher cortical loss, that there's no difference between being dead in a vegetative state um, and being brain dead. But for, but, but for legal purposes, we're pretty clear about what brain death means. Somewhere around 20,000 uh, people who are adults live in vegetative state, about 4 to 10,000 children. There's a range because it's hard to define, and this has not changed over the last 20 years. Life expectancy after persistent vegetative state is about two to th- two to five years. Accommodations: A very important paper came out earlier this year. Uh, brain death determination of brain death and member guidance for brain death accommodations. I'll read to you what the American Academy of Neurology says. They're, they're very respectful of and sympathetic towards the limited accommodation based on reasonable and sincere social, moral, cultural, and religious considerations recognizing that beliefs vary not only between, but within religions, and understanding that such requests must be based on the values of the patient and not of the loved ones of the surrogates who are making the decisions. The article goes on to say that there is no ethical obligation to provide medical treatment to a deceased person, no legal obligation to provide indefinite accommodation, with uh, continued application of organs attaining technology, except in New Jersey, Potential harm to the patient, the family, and other patients and healthcare team from indefinite accommodation. And potential harms including mistreatment of the newly dead, <coughs> deprivation of dignity, provision of false hope, which result in distrust, prolongation of the grieving process. And I'll skip over this. The challenges I think are illustrated by this clip, which is on the internet. We're going to talk now about that 13 year old Alabama boy's incredible recovery. Doctor told Trent McKinley's parents their son was brain dead. His parents even signed the paper to donate his organs, but then they say a miracle happened. And you see, Lindsay Davis is here with more. Good morning, Lindsay. Good morning, Michael. There is one word that people involved in this story keep using to describe it miraculous. One of the trauma surgeons told us the teen's heart stopped for 15 minutes. The doctors believe there was nothing else they could do. That's when the family says there was a divine intervention. This morning, we're going to talk about So one of my professors used to say that a miracle is a doctor's mistake. <laughs> this is the type of thing that is, so we don't know, because these records from this Alabama hospital are HIPAA protected. There's been nothing written about it. We don't know what really happened. But we can't imagine that there was, that that brain death was never accomplished. There's no evidence in any report that anybody who was officially declared brain death by competent intensivists and neurologists ever woke up. And usually this type of media coverage, which, for all of the work we do in ethics and all of the papers we write about ethical issues, is completely reversed by one quick media coverage, which makes families who saw this say, the doctors must know, not know what they're talking about. I, I know for a fact that people that were brain dead woke up, and I'm not talking about the Lazarus syndrome here or the Lazarus sign, which, uh, biblical again, what I can't talk about it. But many cases where the heart started after it stopped, that's different than brain death. So again, in summary today, uh, predetermination is important, elimination of reversible conditions, one or more, usually for pediatrics, at least two examinations by two different attending physicians, with or without support of ancillary tests, ongoing communication with families. Death is a process, not a moment in time. And the things that we support are modifications of state statu- statutorily defined or ju- judiciously adopted definitions of death to achieve uniformity and identify the criteria for determination of death to be criteria currently accepted by the American Academy of Neurology and the American Academy of Pediatrics, Society for Critical Care Medicine, and the Child Neurology Society. Regulation and oversight of institutional guidelines in brain death determination by the Joint Commission to ensure they adhere to the criteria for determination of death currently accepted by these organizations. What's being done? Educational training endeavors, national and international standards. Follow the lead from Nevada, it's the first state, all states should carry through with these uh, laws. Uh, read carefully the American Academy of Neurology statement on accommodation and pregnancy after death, potential merging of the pediatric and adult guidelines, harmonization, and an online toolkit on how to perform brain death examinations, which is already up. And for those people who want to read more on this topic, obviously the most important books to read are everybody already read. Kubler-Roth's Death On Death and Dying. But the Hastings Center Guidelines for Decisions on Life-Sustaining Treatment and near Care Near the End of Life is also a very good document. And a wonderful book that came out last year, uh, Modern Death, How Medicine Changed the End of Life uh, by Hatter Warch. Uh, wonderful read for anybody who's interested. Uh, I have time to take questions. Thank you very much. Thank you William. Uh, very complete provocative presentation um, so we have uh, we have time for questions and while people are thinking about that I guess if you could